Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White The Monk, A Romance by Matthew Gregory Lewis Chapter 5, Part 1 O you whom vanity's light bark conveys On fame's mad voyage by the wind of praise, With what a shifting gale your course you ply, Forever sunk too low, or born too high. Who pants for glory finds but short repose. A breath revives him, and a breath o'erthrows. Pope Here the Marquis concluded his adventures. Lorenzo, before he could determine on his reply, passed some moments in reflection. At length he broke silence. Raymond, said he, taking his hand, strict honor would oblige me to wash off in your blood the stain thrown upon my family, but the circumstances of your case forbid me to consider you as an enemy. The temptation was too great to be resisted. Tis the superstition of my relations which has occasioned these misfortunes, and they are more the offenders than yourself and Agnes. What has passed between you cannot be recalled, but may yet be repaired by uniting you to my sister. You have ever been, you still continue to be, my dearest and indeed my only friend. I feel for Agnes the truest affection, and there is no one on whom I would bestow her more willingly than on yourself. Pursue, then, your design. I will accompany you to-morrow night and conduct her myself to the house of the cardinal. My presence will be a sanction for her conduct, and prevent her incurring blame by her flight from the convent. The Marquis thanked him in terms by no means deficient in gratitude. Lorenzo then informed him that he had nothing more to apprehend from Doña Rodolfa's enmity. Five months had already elapsed since, in an excess of passion, she broke a blood vessel and expired in the course of a few hours. He then proceeded to mention the interest of Antonio. The Marquis was much surprised at hearing of his new relation. His father had carried his hatred of Elvida to the grave, and never given the least hint that he knew what was become of his eldest son's widow. Don Ramon assured his friend that he was not mistaken in supposing him ready to acknowledge his sister-in-law and her amiable daughter. The preparations for the elopement would not permit his visiting them the next day, but, in the meanwhile, he desired Lorenzo to assure them of his friendship, 
and to supply Elvira upon his account with any sums which he might want. This the youth promised to do, as soon as her abode should be known to him. He then took leave of his future brother, and returned to the palace de Medina. The day was already on the point of breaking when the Marquis retired to his chamber. Conscious that his narrative would take up some hours, and wishing to secure himself from interruption on returning to the hotel, he ordered his attendants not to sit up for him. Consequently, he was somewhat surprised on entering his ante-room to find Theodore established there. The page sat near a table with a pen in his hand, and was so totally occupied by his employment that he perceived not his lord's approach. The Marquise stopped to observe him. Theodore wrote a few lines, then paused, and scratched out a part of the writing, then wrote again, smiled, and seemed highly pleased with what he had been about. At last he threw down his pen, sprang from his chair, and clapped his hands together joyfully. "'There it is,' cried he aloud. "'Now they are charming.' His transports were interrupted by a laugh from the Marquise, who suspected the nature of his employment. "'What is so charming, Theodore?' The youth started, and looked round. He blushed, ran to the table, seized the paper on which he had been writing, and concealed it in confusion. "'Oh, my lord, I knew not that you were so near me. Can I be of use to you? Lucas is already gone to bed. I shall follow his example when I have given my opinion of your verses. "'My verses, my lord?' "'Nay, I am sure that you have been writing some, for nothing else could have kept you awake till this time of the morning. Where are they, Theodore? I shall like to see your composition.' Theodore's cheeks glowed with still deeper crimson. He longed to show his poetry, but first chose to be pressed for it. Indeed, my lord, they are not worthy your attention. Not these verses which you just now declared to be so charming? Come, come, let me see whether our opinions are the same. I promise that you shall find in me an indulgent critic. The boy produced his paper with seeming reluctance, but the satisfaction which sparkled in his dark, expressive eyes betrayed the vanity of his little bosom. The Marquis smiled, while he observed the emotions of an heart as yet but little skilled in veiling its sentiments. He seated himself upon a sofa. Theodore, while hope and fear contended on his anxious countenance, waited with inquietude for his master's decision while the Marquise read the following lines. Love and Age The night was dark, the wind blew cold. Anacreon, grown morose and old, sat by his fire and fed the cheerful flame. Sudden the cottage door expands, and lo, before him Cupid stands, casts round a friendly glance and greets him by his name. "'What? Is it thou?' the startled sire in sullen tone exclaimed, while ire with crimson flushed his pale and wrinkled cheek. "'Wouldst thou again with amorous rage inflame my bosom, steeled by age, vain boy? To pierce my breast thine arrows are too weak. What seek you in this desert drear? No smiles or sports inhabit here.' 
Ne'er did these valleys witness dalliance sweet. Eternal winter binds the plains. Age in my house despotic reigns. My garden boasts no flower. My bosom boasts no heat. Be gone, and seek the blooming bower, Where some ripe virgin courts thy power, Or bid provoking dreams flit round her bed, On Damon's amorous breast repose, Wanton on Chloe's lip of rose, Or make her blushing cheek a pillow for thy head. Be such thy haunts, these regions cold avoid, Nor think, grown wise and old, this hoary head again thy yoke shall bear remembering that my fairest years by thee were marked with sighs and tears i think thy friendship false and shun the guileful snare i have not yet forgot the pains i felt while bound in julia's chains the ardent flames with which my bosom burned the nights i passed deprived of rest the jealous pangs which racked my breast my disappointed hopes, and passion unreturned. Then fly, and curse mine eyes no more, fly from my peaceful cottage door. No day, no hour, no moment shalt thou stay, I know thy falsehood, scorn thy arts, distrust thy smiles, and fear thy darts. Traitor, be gone, and seek some other to betray. Does age, old man, your wits confound? Replied the offended God, and frowned. His frown was sweet as is the virgin's smile. Do you to me these words address? To me, who do not love you less, Though you my friendship scorn, and pleasures past revile? If one proud fair you chance to find, and hundred other nymphs were kind, Whose smiles might well for Julia's frowns atone. But such is man, his partial hand Unnumbered favors writes on sand, But stamps one little fault on solid lasting stone. Ingrate, who led you to the wave at noon, Where Lesbia loved to lave? Who named the bower alone where Daphne lay, and who, when Celia shrieked for aid, bade you with kisses hush the maid? What other wast than love, O false Anacreon? Say. Then you could call me gentle boy, my only bliss, my source of joy. Then you could prize me dearer than your soul could kiss and dance me on your knee, and swear not wine itself would please, had not the lip of love first touched the flowing bowl. Must those sweet days return no more? Must I, for I, your loss deplore? Banished your heart, and from your favor driven? Ah, no, my fears that smile denies, that heaving breast, those sparkling eyes declare me ever dear, And all my faults forgiven. Again beloved, esteemed, caressed, Cupid shall in thine arms be pressed, Sport on thy knees, or on thy bosom sleep. 
My torch thine age-struck heart shall warm, My hand pale winter's rage disarm, And youth and spring shall here once more their revels keep. A feather now of golden hue he smiling from his pinion drew, This to the poet's hand the boy commits, and straight before Anacreon's eyes the fairest dreams of fancy rise, and round his favoured head wild inspiration flits. His bosom glows with amorous fire. Eager he grasps the magic lyre. Swift o'er the tuneful chords his fingers move. The feather plucked from Cupid's wing sweeps the too long neglected string, while soft Anacreon sings the power and praise of love. Soon as that name was heard, the woods shook off their snows, the melting floods broke their cold chains, and winter fled away. Once more the earth was decked with flowers, mild zephyrs breathed through blooming bowers, high towered the glorious sun, and poured the blaze of day. Attracted by the harmonious sound, Sylvans and fawns the cot surround, And curious crowd the minstrel to behold. The wood-nymphs haste the spell to prove. Eager they run, they list, they love, And, while they hear the strain, Forget the man is old. Cupid, to nothing constant long, Perched on the harp, attends the song, or stifles with a kiss the dulcet notes. Now on the poet's breast reposes, now twines his hoary locks with roses, or borne on wings of gold in wanton circle floats. Then thus Anacreon, I no more at other shrines my vows will pour, since Cupid deigns my numbers to inspire. From Phoebus, or the blue-eyed maid, now shall my verse request no aid, for love alone shall be the patron of my lyre. In lofty strain of earlier days I spread the king's or hero's praise, and struck the martial chords with epic fire. But farewell, hero, farewell, king. Your deed my lips no more shall sing, for love alone shall be the subject of my lyre. The Marquise returned the paper with a smile of encouragement. Your little poem pleases me much, said he. However, you must not count my opinion for anything. I am no judge of verses, and for my own part, never composed more than six lines in my life. Those six produced so unlucky an effect that I am fully resolved never to compose another. But I wonder from my subject. I was going to say that you cannot employ your time worse than in making verses. An author, whether good or bad, or between both, is an animal whom everybody is privileged to attack. For though all are not able to write books, all conceive themselves able to judge them. A bad composition carries with it its own punishment, contempt and ridicule. A good one excites envy and entails upon its author a thousand mortifications. He finds himself assailed by partial and ill-humoured criticism. 
one man finds fault with the plan, another with the style, a third with the precept which it strives to inculcate. And they who cannot succeed in finding fault with the book employ themselves in stigmatizing its author. They maliciously rake out from obscurity every little circumstance which may throw ridicule upon his private character or conduct, and aim at wounding the man since they cannot hurt the writer. In short, to enter the lists of literature is willfully to expose yourself to the arrows of neglect, ridicule, envy, and disappointment. Whether you write well or ill, be assured that you will not escape from blame. Indeed, this circumstance contains a young author's chief consolation. He remembers that Lope de Vega and Calderona had unjust and envious critics, and he modestly conceives himself to be exactly in their predicament. But I am conscious that all these sage observations are thrown away upon you. Authorship is a mania, to conquer which no reasons are sufficiently strong, and you might as easily persuade me not to love as I persuade you not to write. However, if you cannot help being occasionally seized with a poetical paroxysm, take at least the precaution of communicating your verses to none but those whose partiality for you secures their approbation. Then, my lord, you do not think these lines tolerable? said Theodore with an humble and dejected air. You mistake my meaning. As I said before, they have pleased me much, but my regard for you makes me partial, and others might judge them less favorably. I must still remark that even my prejudice in your favor does not blind me so much as to prevent my observing several faults. For instance, you make a terrible confusion of metaphors. You are too apt to make the strength of your lines consist more in the words than sense. Some of the verses seem introduced only in order to rhyme with others, and most of the best ideas are borrowed from other poets, though possibly you are unconscious of the theft yourself. These faults may occasionally be excused in a work of length, but a short poem must be correct and perfect. All this is true, senor, but you should consider that I only write for pleasure. Your defects are the less excusable. Their incorrectness may be forgiven who work for money, who are obliged to complete a given task in a given time, and are paid according to the bulk, not value, of their productions. But in those whom no necessity forces to turn author, who merely write for fame and have full leisure to polish their compositions, faults are unpardonable, and merit the sharpest arrows of criticism. The Marquise rose from the sofa. The page looked discouraged and melancholy, and this did not escape his master's observation. However, added he, smiling, I think that these lines do you no discredit. Your versification is tolerably easy, and your ear seems to be just. The perusal of your little poem, upon the whole, gave me much pleasure, and if it is not asking too great a favor, I shall be highly obliged to you for a copy. The youth's countenance immediately cleared up. He perceived not the smile, half approving, half ironical, which accompanied the request, and he promised the copy with great readiness. The Marquise withdrew to his chamber, 
much amused by the instantaneous effect produced upon Theodore's vanity, by the conclusion of his criticism. He threw himself upon his couch. Sleep soon stole over him, and his dreams presented him with the most flattering pictures of happiness with Agnes. On reaching the Hotel de Medina, Lorenzo's first care was to inquire for letters. He found several waiting for him, but that which he sought was not amongst them. Leonella had found it impossible to write that evening. However, her impatience to secure Don Cristobal's heart, on which she flattered herself with having made no slight impression, permitted her not to pass another day without informing him where she was to be found. On her return from the Capuchin church, she had related to her sister, with exultation, how attentive and handsome cavalier had been to her, as also how his companion had undertaken to plead Antonia's cause with the Marquise de las Cisternas. Elvira received this intelligence with sensations very different from those with which it was communicated. She blamed her sister's imprudence in confiding her history to an absolute stranger, and expressed her fears lest this inconsiderate step should prejudice the Marquise against her. The greatest of her apprehensions she concealed in her own breast. She had observed with inquietude that, at the mention of Lorenzo, a deep blush spread itself over her daughter's cheek. The timid Antonia dared not to pronounce his name. Without knowing wherefore, she felt embarrassed when he was made the subject of discourse, and endeavored to change the conversation to Ambrosio. Elvira perceived the emotions of this young bosom. In consequence, she insisted upon Leonela's breaking her promise to the cavaliers. A sigh, which, on hearing this order, escaped from Antonia, confirmed the wary mother in her resolution. Through this resolution, Leonela was determined to break. She conceived it to be inspired by envy, and that her sister dreaded her being elevated above her. Without imparting her design to anyone, she took an opportunity of dispatching the following note to Lorenzo. It was delivered to him as soon as he woke. Doubtless, Signor Don Lorenzo, you have frequently accused me of ingratitude and forgetfulness. But on the word of a virgin, it was out of my power to perform my promise yesterday. I know not in what words to inform you how strange a reception my sister gave your kind wish to visit her. She is an odd woman, with many good points about her, but her jealousy of me frequently makes her conceived notions quite unaccountable. On hearing that your friend had paid some little attention to me, she immediately took the alarm. She blamed my conduct, and has absolutely forbidden me to let you know our abode. My strong sense of gratitude for your kind offers of service, and, shall I confess it, my desire to behold once more the too amiable Don Cristobal, will not permit my obeying her injunctions. I have, therefore, stolen a moment to inform you that we lodge in the Stradia di San Iago, four doors from the Palace d'Albornos, and nearly opposite to the barber's Miguel Cuello. Inquire for Doña Elvira d'Alfa, since, in compliance with her father-in-law's order, my sister continues to be called by her maiden name. At eight this evening you will be sure of finding us, but let not a word drop which may raise a suspicion of my having written this letter. Should you see the Conde d'Osorio, 
Tell him, I blush while I declare it, tell him that his presence will be but too acceptable to the sympathetic. Leonella. The latter sentences were written in red ink to express the blushes of her cheek while she committed an outrage upon her virgin modesty. Lorenzo had no sooner perused this note than he set out in search of Don Cristobal. Not being able to find him in the course of the day, he proceeded to Doña Elvira's alone, to Leonela's infinite disappointment. The domestic, by whom he sent up his name, having already declared his lady to be at home, she had no excuse for refusing his visit, yet she consented to receive it with much reluctance. That reluctance was increased by the changes which his approach produced in Antonia's countenance, nor was it by any means abated when the youth himself appeared. The symmetry of his person, animation of his features, and natural elegance of his manners and address, convinced Elvira that such a guest must be dangerous for her daughter. She resolved to treat him with distant politeness, to decline his services with gratitude for the tender of them, and to make him feel, without offense, that his future visits would be far from acceptable. On his entrance he found Elvira, who was indisposed, reclining upon a sofa. Antonia sat by her embroidery frame, and Leonella, in a pastoral dress, held Montemayor's Diana. In spite of her being the mother of Antonia, Lorenzo could not help expecting to find in Elvira Leonella's true sister, and the daughter of as honest a painstaking shoemaker as any in Cordova. A single glance was sufficient to undeceive him. He beheld a woman whose features, though impaired by time and sorrow, still bore the marks of distinguished beauty. A serious dignity reigned upon her countenance, but was tempered by a grace and sweetness which rendered her truly enchanting. Lorenzo fancied that she must have resembled her daughter in her youth, and readily excused the imprudence of the late Conde de las Cisternas. She desired him to be seated, and immediately resumed her place upon the sofa. Antonia received him with a simple reverence, and continued her work. Her cheeks were suffused with crimson, and she strove to conceal her emotion by leaning over her embroidery frame. Her aunt also chose to play off her airs of modesty. She affected to blush and tremble, and waited with her eyes cast down to receive, as she expected, the compliments of Don Cristobal. Finding after some time that no sign of his approach was given, she ventured to look round the room, and perceived with vexation that Medina was unaccompanied. Impatience would not permit her waiting for an explanation. Interrupting Lorenzo, who was delivering Raymond's message, she desired to know what was become of his friend. He, who thought it necessary to maintain himself in her good graces, strove to console her, under her disappointment, by committing a little violence upon truth. "'Ah, senora,' he replied in a melancholy voice, "'how grieved will he be at losing this opportunity of paying you his respects. A relation's illness has obliged him to quit Madrid in haste. But on his return he will doubtless seize the first moment with transport to throw himself at your feet. As he said this, his eyes met those of Elvira. She punished his falsehood sufficiently 
by darting at him a look expressive of displeasure and reproach. Neither did the deceit answer his intention. Vexed and disappointed, Leonella rose from her seat and retired in dudgeon to her own apartment. Lorenzo hastened to repair the fault which had injured him in Elvida's opinion. He related his conversation with the Marquise respecting her. He assured her that Ramon was prepared to acknowledge her for his brother's widow, and that, till it was in his power to pay his compliments to her in person, Lorenzo was commissioned to supply his place. This intelligence relieved Elvida from a heavy weight of uneasiness. She had now found a protector for the fatherless Antonia, for whose future fortunes she had suffered the greatest apprehensions. She was not sparing of her thanks to him who had interfered so generously in her behalf. But still she gave him no invitation to repeat his visit. However, when, upon rising to depart, he requested permission to inquire after her health occasionally, the polite earnestness of his manner, gratitude for his services, and respect for his friend the Marquise, would not admit of a refusal. She consented reluctantly to receive him. He promised not to abuse her goodness, and quitted the house. Antonia was now left alone with her mother. A temporary silence ensued. Both wished to speak upon the same subject, but neither knew how to introduce it. The one felt a bashfulness which sealed up her lips, and for which she could not account. The other feared to find her apprehensions true, or to inspire her daughter with notions to which she might be still a stranger. At length, Elvira began the conversation. "'That is a charming young man, Antonia. I am much pleased with him. Was he long near you yesterday in the cathedral?' He quitted me not for a moment while I stayed in the church. He gave me his seat, and was very obliging and attentive. "'Indeed? Why, then, have you never mentioned his name to me? Your aunt launched out in praise of his friend, and you vaunted Ambrosio's eloquence.' but neither said a word of Don Lorenzo's person and accomplishments. Had not Leonella spoken of his readiness to undertake our cause, I should not have known him to be in existence. She paused. Antonia colored, but was silent. Perhaps you judge him less favorably than I do. In my opinion, his figure is pleasing, his conversation sensible, and manners engaging. Still, he may have struck you differently. You may think him disagreeable, and— Disagreeable? Oh, dear mother, how should I possibly think him so? I should be very ungrateful were I not sensible of his kindness yesterday, and very blind if his merits had escaped me. His figure is so graceful, so noble, his manners so gentle, yet so manly. I never yet saw so many accomplishments united in one person, and I doubt whether Madrid can produce his equal. Why, then, were you so silent in praise of this phoenix of Madrid? Why was it concealed from me that his society had afforded you pleasure? In truth, I know not. You ask me a question which I cannot resolve myself. I was on the point of mentioning him a thousand times. His name was constantly on my lips. But when I would have pronounced it, I wanted courage to execute my design. However, if I did not speak of him... It was not that I thought of him the less. That I believe. But shall I tell you why you wanted courage? 
It was because, accustomed to confide to me your most secret thoughts, you knew not how to conceal yet fear to acknowledge that your heart nourished a sentiment which you were conscious I should disapprove. Come hither to me, my child. Antonia quitted her embroidery frame, threw herself upon her knees by the sofa, and hid her face in her mother's lap. Fear not, my sweet girl. Consider me equally as your friend and parent, and apprehend no reproof from me. I have read the emotions of your bosom. You are yet ill-skilled in concealing them, and they could not escape my attentive eye. This Lorenzo is dangerous to your repose. He has already made an impression upon your heart. Tis true that I perceive easily that your affection is returned. But what can be the consequences of this attachment? You are poor and friendless, my Antonia. Lorenzo is the heir of the Duke of Medina Celli. Even should himself mean honorably, his uncle never will consent to your union. Nor without that uncle's consent will I. By sad experience I know what sorrow she must endure who marries into a family unwilling to receive her. Then struggle with your affection. Whatever pains it may cost you, strive to conquer it. Your heart is tender and susceptible. It has already received a strong impression, but when once convinced that you should not encourage such sentiments, I trust that you have sufficient fortitude to drive them from your bosom. Antonia kissed her hand and promised implicit obedience. Elvira then continued. To prevent your passion from growing stronger, it will be needful to prohibit Lorenzo's visits. The service which he has rendered me permits not my forbidding them positively, but unless I judge too favorably of his character, he will discontinue them without taking offense, if I confess to him my reasons and throw myself entirely on his generosity. The next time that I see him, I will honestly avow to him the embarrassment which his presence occasions. How say you, my child? Is not this measure necessary? Antonia subscribed to everything without hesitation, though not without regret. Her mother kissed her affectionately and retired to bed. Antonia followed her example and vowed so frequently never more to think of Lorenzo that till sleep closed her eyes she thought of nothing else. While this was passing at Elvira's, Lorenzo hastened to rejoin the Marquise. Everything was ready for the second elopement of Agnes, and at twelve the two friends with a coach and four were at the garden wall of the convent. Don Ramon drew out his key and unlocked the door. They entered and waited for some time in expectation of being joined by Agnes. At length the Marquise grew impatient. Beginning to fear that his second attempt would succeed no better than the first, he proposed to reconnoiter the convent. The friends advanced towards it. Everything was still and dark. The prioress was anxious to keep the story a secret, fearing lest the crime of one of its members should bring disgrace upon the whole community, or that the interposition of powerful relations should deprive her vengeance of its intended victim. She took care, therefore, to give the lover of Agnes no cause to suppose that his design was discovered, and his mistress on the point of suffering the punishment of her fault. The same reason made her reject the idea of arresting the unknown seducer in the garden. Such a proceeding would have created much disturbance, and the disgrace of her convent would have noised about Madrid. 
she contented herself with confining Agnes closely. As to the lover, she left him at liberty to pursue his designs. What she had expected was the result. The Marquise and Lorenzo waited in vain till the break of day. They then retired without noise, alarmed at the failure of their plan, and ignorant of the cause of its ill success. End of chapter 5, part 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista